Well, welcome to the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, measuring by our Advent wreath. After today, the next time we see each other will be Christmas Eve, when we will light our final candle, the Christ candle. As we celebrate Advent, we have been traveling back in time to join those who waited before the days of Herod, king of Judea. We enter into the drama of redemption history when they knew neither the time nor the place the promised Messiah would come. They waited in the dark. And even though we know what they knew not, we wait with them, deferring our celebration for just a little bit longer, three days longer, in order to build our anticipation. We do this because we have a weight of our own that we are enduring. We are waiting for Jesus, having already come and gone, to come again as he has promised. We know neither the time nor the place the promised Messiah will come, but we learn how to wait faithfully for his second advent by reliving the wait for his first. We grow in confidence that he will come again when we remember that he kept his promise the first time. And as our anticipation builds for Christmas, it simultaneously builds for Christ to come again. For we too anticipate a coming of the Messiah. And for the last three weeks, we have revisited the anticipation, the Old Testament anticipation, for a person who will be our prophet, our priest, and our king. And this week, we are anticipating one who is fully God. And to do that, we're going to visit a family living in Zorah, a city of the tribe of Dan, located approximately 18 miles due west of Jerusalem. And there in that city, we are introduced to a nameless woman, Manoah's wife. She's nameless because the most important fact about her for the sake of this story is not her name, but the fact that she is barren, unable to either get or stay pregnant. She has no children. No hope, no name. In a way, the status of her womb is representative of the situation in Zora as a whole. It was a bleak time in Zora. As the opening verses of our passage document, Israel had done what was evil in God's sight, going after other gods to worship them, as if idols made of wood and stone could ever satisfy the longings of our souls. And God had given them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines occupied Zorah and the tribe of Dan. This foreign people lived in houses that were not their own. They ate food they hadn't planted. They drank wine from grapes that they themselves hadn't pressed. It was an occupation. And the whole tribe of Dan was enslaved to these Philistines. And this was a pattern throughout the book of Judges. God's people would neglect him. God would hand them over to slavery for correction. They would cry out to God for mercy, and God would raise up a judge to free them from their slavery. But the pattern is broken in our passage this morning. God's people neglected him, and God handed them over to slavery for correction, but there was no cry for mercy. It was silent. Their spirit had left them, and in its place was an acceptance of their abject misery. They were crushed, defeated, silent. And it's an irony that the only person in the opening scene of this story is Manoah. It's an irony because his name means rest. 
and yet he is portrayed in the most unflattering manner. This man, whose name means rest, is an insecure imbecile who serves to only provide comic relief. In other words, there is no rest. Rest is a joke. Like the womb within the woman, there's no hope in Zora. But despite the broken pattern, despite the lack of pleas for mercy on the part of God's people, God has mercy anyway. God sent an angel to Manoah's wife to tell her the most wonderful news. She is going to get pregnant and give birth to a son. It is a glimmer of personal hope for this woman and a glimpse of corporate hope for her people. This son will not just be her child, but also her people's hero and God's chosen one. The angel informs Manoah's wife that this child is to be a Nazarite before God from birth, and consequently will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's because this child will be a Nazarite that Manoah's wife is prohibited from drinking alcohol or eating anything ceremonially unclean during the nine months that she carries the child. It's also why the boy's hair is not to be cut. A Nazarite was a person who, was typically, who typically devoted themselves to God in a special way for a temporary period of time. But this boy, Samson was his name, was born devoted to God for life in this special way. He had no choice in the matter. God had chosen this life for him, and his parents devoted him to God by obediently following the rules of the Nazarite set out in number six. There were three things a Nazarite was prohibited from doing in that passage. They could not drink alcohol, they could not cut their hair, and they were not to come into contact with a dead body, whether human or animal, even if it is the dead body of a family member whom they loved. God had chosen Samuel to be a Nazarite. He had chosen Sam, Samson, not Samuel, Samson for himself. And he was to be the savior of God's people who were languishing under the Philistine occupation. But if you know anything about Samson, then you know that Samson is a complicated figure. One commentator describes him and his story best. Samson is a perplexing figure, he writes. And so is the account of his birth and turbulent career in the following chapters. It contains riddles, and in a sense, that is what the whole story is, a riddle, an enigma, like Samson himself. Perhaps that's why it's always been so popular. The account of Samson simultaneously attracts and repels us and pulls us this way and that with its strong currents of physical and emotional energy and presents us at last with a broken man whom we cannot help but feel for, even though it is clear that he has been his own worst enemy. Samson is no cardboard cutout or plastic hero. He's too hot-blooded and raw for that. Whatever else he is, He's a real human being. His humanity calls to our own in a way that makes us identify with him, even if we cannot understand or like him. In a sense, he is us. That is what is so disturbing about him. Samson is us. You are Samson, which is a comparison you're probably not used to. It's a comparison that is simultaneously offensive and outlandish. 
It's offensive because Samson was a man seemingly unable to control his impulses. One scholar describes Samson as inhabiting the borderlands between the civilized and the wild, between man and beast. Another writes that he is a he-man with a little licking boy inside. You don't want to be Samson. He reveled in making others look foolish, which is the reason for all his riddles and rhymes. He is immature, manipulative, selfish, insubordinate, insatiable, and unruly. You don't want to even be compared to Samson. And neither does any comparison to Samson seem appropriate for you, but rather outlandish. At times, Samson appears to not be human, but superhuman bordering on godlike with his legendary strength and mastery over creation. He kills a lion with his bare hands. He tears a city gate from its hinges and sets it down on top of a hill as a sort of monument to his strength. He burns down the Philistine crops by setting 300 foxes on fire and letting them loose in the fields. He kills 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey as his only weapon, My greatest strength is assembling an Ikea bookshelf all by myself. (laughs) Samson was a savior, a hero capable of single-handedly delivering his people from the Philistines. Any comparison to Samson is simultaneously offensive and outlandish. And yet look more closely at the man. And there, past the feats of strength, and any of his particular faults, you will find a human being just like you and me. Samson is a savior and yet a sinner because he's human. His story echoes Eden. Samson is a recapitulation of Adam and Eve. Samson is an exaggerated version of our first parents and therefore of us as well. He makes the same mistakes that humanity has been making for millennia, only on a grander scale. He is us. He is you. What was the original sin of humanity after all? It can be boiled down to three words, three verbs. See, take, eat. Adam and Eve were given everything and denied only one thing, one thing. They were not to eat the fruit of a particular tree, but Eve was deceived by the serpent, the enemy of God, and the suspicion of God entered into her mind and into her heart. The story goes that seeing that the prohibited fruit was pleasing to the eye and good for food, she took some and ate it. See, take, eat. She desired what God refused to give her because it would kill her. And thinking herself more wise than God, she took it and ate it. Her appetite, her desire became her God in that moment. And because misery loves company, she gave some to Adam and he too saw, took and ate. And the two of them together brought sin into the world. See, take, eat. It is the ancient pattern of sin that Samson the Nazarite followed and we too repeat today. I mention again that Samson is a Nazarite because Nazarites were divinely prohibited from coming into contact with any dead thing, be it human or animal. And this was true of all God's people, but the restriction was particularly heightened for a Nazarite. And yet, 
Samson sees a beehive inside the rotting carcass of a lion he killed. And he scrapes the sweet, sticky substance out with his hand and eats it. And because misery loves company, he brought some to his parents, not telling them where he found the honey, of course, because he knew they would object. And seeing the honey, they too ate, and they too became unclean. It is the ancient human pattern of sin. Samson is showing himself to be a mere human being, much like you. What is it that God has kept from you that you see and desire to take and eat? What restrictions do you chafe against and want to throw off in an act of rebellion that promises freedom but only produces shame and more searching? Samson shows us that there's actual satisfaction to be had in seeing what is pleasing to the eye and yet refusing to take and eat. There is rest to be had in refusing our sinful desires. And returning to Eden, we see that one of the results of the rebellion was the corruption of creation. Because of human sin, all of creation bore the curse. The Apostle Paul tells us that creation longs for the redemption of humanity because as long as our nature is corrupt, creation will suffer under our rapacious dominance. We use it for our own selfish means and do not steward it so that it flourishes under our care as God designed the relationship from the beginning. Humanity sinned and an animal had to be killed to cover our nakedness. From the beginning, our sin has affected the creation. And so we see Samson continuing this human story of a strained relationship with animals by using them as instruments of his destruction. He first tears a lion to pieces as if he himself is some wild predator. And this dead lion provides him with a riddle that nearly wins him a fortune. He then takes the jaw of a donkey and with it kills 1,000 men. And the piece de resistance is converting 300 foxes into living torches. Creation was pressed into impure service, and it groaned under Samson, just as it groans under our domination and breaks out in floods and hurricanes and melting ice caps and warming oceans. But it's not just humanity's relationship with creation that was corrupted in Eden, but our relationship with God. If you look at the punishment that God hands out in Genesis 3... God had to introduce animosity between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. Adam and Eve sided with God's enemy in the garden, and they would have remained thick as thieves had God not introduced hostility into their relationship. And so we see this tendency in humanity to pursue evil and to call it good, to draw others into our own failures. And along comes Samson, God's chosen Savior, to deliver his people from Philistine occupation, and he marries a Philistine woman. He abandons his parents and instead adopts Philistine traditions. He's making friends with the enemy, normalizing and blessing what God opposes. He's human, and therefore he calls good what God despises and calls evil what God has deemed good. And because of his sinful nature, the salvation he offers is compromised. It's mixed with impure motives and tainted by selfish desires. 
Samson offers a salvation that you aren't sure you want to accept because you aren't sure that you want to be associated with him. But this is the best humanity can do. He is like us. He is like you. What you get with Samson is what you can expect from any mere human being on whom you place your hope for change or redemption. It's complicated and ultimately proves to be unsatisfying. Which is why we need a Savior who is not just human, but also fully God. Someone we can look to for a salvation that is motivated purely by love for us. Someone who will meet all our needs and fulfill all our hopes, and only God can do this. The hype around Samson's birth, with the angel and the miraculous reversal of the of the barren woman's fortunes turned out to be a disappointment. But the scene surrounding Samson's birth provides us with an idea of what to look for. And in Luke 1, we return again to Israel, where an angel again visits a woman who is not barren, but a virgin. And the angel tells her that she is going to have a baby, and this baby will be a savior like Samson. Only this time he will save his people not from the Philistines, but from their sin. The virgin will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. This baby will be God, fully God. The baby is Jesus Christ. He will not see, take, and eat for himself, but will instead pray for the Father's will to be done and so die to himself in order that we might be forgiven. He gives himself to us so that we can take, see, and eat him and be satisfied. He will not abuse creation for his own purposes, but will restore our relationship to creation. And he gives us a glimpse of this when on his way into Jerusalem, during the last week of his life, he rides on an unbroken colt and it did not buck against him but instead carried him on its back into the holy city to die for us, man and beast working together to accomplish God's will. And when met by God's enemy in the wilderness and tempted to bow down to him, to befriend him, he sided with God and rebuked the devil. He will redeem us from the ruts we have been living in since the Garden of Eden, ruts that Samuel lived in, Samson lived in. Samuel did too. He will save us from ourselves and reconcile us back to the Father. And he can do this because he is God. He can be our Savior because he is God. With Jesus, there's no show in his victory. There's no spectacle of strength. Samson shoved down the pillars and the, the temple came collapsing down. But with Jesus, there is only the quiet, slowly fading breaths of the Son of God dying on a Roman cross for you. His death, His life, His resurrection is our salvation. So come to Jesus, one who is fully God, and find rest for your soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.